and it was also off. Okay, that's probably why it was buzzing.
Good morning. Good morning. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18a through 19a. Today is our communion service, and as is our tradition, we'll take a short break and then regather uh, when you hear the music. There'll be uh, no uh, choir and no evening service, but uh, if you'll jump down to number three there after the communion, uh, there's pizza and then an Easter egg hunt, weather permitting. It looks pretty good out there, doesn't it? So I think we can do that. Great. Um, and then uh, a family movie in the Fellowship Hall. So uh, if you are not prepared for that and you want to stay, please do. Um, be our guest for that. Prayer meeting Wednesday uh, at 7. Uh, you can see Andrea's number there. Days of Praise booklets are here for the next quarter. Uh, you see the financial note there. Acts and Facts also for April and the Free Grace Broadcaster. Uh, so lots of reading to do. Um, Easter sunrise service coming, so uh, take note of that. More information coming. Is there a sign-up on that yet already? Is that posted? Okay, so the sign-up sheet... Uh, for the Easter sunrise service and breakfast uh, are on the helps board. Um, help me, when is that? Not next week, the 20th, 20th? The, the following. So, okay. What have I missed? A lot, but nothing right now. <laughs> Scripture for meditation this morning, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, read 27 through 44.
Let's stand and open our service with a prayer. George, would you open for us today? Thanks. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather with your people today. We ask, dear Lord, that your blessing would be upon this place and this people, that your word would go forth with power, and that it would convict our souls. Open our minds up, Lord, that we may know and understand the truth of your word. Bless pastor as he speaks, that Christ might be exalted in all that is said and done. We ask this in Christ's name. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 199 in the brown, please. 199.
Is there a favorite hymn this morning? Terry, there's a hand I haven't seen in a while. Terry, yes, ma'am. I would like us to sing Amazing Grace 202, partly because of Josh and his um, testimony yesterday and memorial for his grandma. All right, wonderful. Thank you. 202. In the brown. In the brown, yes, please. Chapter 1, we'll be reading 17 through 25, 1887 in the Hebrew. <coughs> Do we have a reader this morning? Uh, 
That's you? Okay, great. That's easy. Stand with us. Let's stand together. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers, here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in those last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field. A grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Amen. Take your brown hymnal once again and turn to number 206, 206 in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1. Our last study in the series, Christian Living in Perilous Times, proved that when God deals with people, he shows no favoritism. Even though he is our spiritual father, God is also our judge. We discovered that with his Old Testament people, Israel, God cared for them as a father does for his family, but when they sinned, He chastised them and did not let them off easily because simply he was their spiritual father. No, they were chastised. It is love that disciplines waywardness and it is hatred that lets wickedness go unpunished. The end of the wicked is that they will perish. I mean, so what father wants to see that happen to his children? Well, God has pledged himself not to have that happen to his family. If he has to spank us, he's going to spank us so that we stay on the straight and narrow, as we often like to talk about. Then secondly, we talked about what it's like to live under the rule of an impartial God. Peter says, live your lives as strangers here. That is, don't become embedded with the culture by adopting its values, its goals, its methods. In the story Pilgrim's Progress, we notice that Pilgrim was tempted by Vanity Fair. By the way, that fair that has never shut down, even up to this day. Vanity Fair, still very much. A part of our world. Alluring, drawing, attracting, trying to pull us back to living that style. Secondly, we looked at live your lives in reverent fear of God. Who did not spare, this is important, who did not spare his only begotten son when he became the sin bearer for his people. Now think about this. If God dealt with Jesus on the cross... As the righteous judge that he is, is he going to let you off the hook for your willful sin? No, you need to have that sacrifice of Christ applied in order to be saved. Well, in today's study, 1 Peter, the apostle gives another incentive for striving to live a holy life. What is that incentive? He talks about redemption's costly price. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray that you will bless us with the truth of it. We have many people in our day, they have their own views of heaven, how they're going to get there, what heaven is even like. When we hear their description of heaven, it sounds more like hell than heaven from a Christian viewpoint because it's full of all kinds of licentious living. But the scripture teaches that heaven is a holy place because you are a holy God. And so if we're going to be partaking of holiness, then we have to be equipped for that. We have to be changed in our nature and in our hearts. And only God can do that. Only God can change another person. 
And you do that, Lord, through the preaching of truth. So help us to preach that this morning, to be people of truth. For me to preach it, for our people to hear it, for us all to obey it, and not exempt ourselves in any way. We ask this for our good. We also ask it for your glory. You are glorified when truth goes forth. And so we praise you for even recording it for us in the Holy Scriptures. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject, Redemption's Costly Price. Redemption's Costly Price. The first thing I have in the bulletin outline is that we're all captives. We don't think we are, but we are. We're captives. Some years ago, off the eastern coast of Africa, the eastern coast now, we don't normally think of that side of Africa, but off that coast, Somali pirates were heretofore taking capture cargo ships in that sea laden down with very valuable merchandise. Yeah, they were pirates. That's what pirates do. But then on this occasion, some years back, they decided to capture a couple from England who were sailing their yacht, not a cargo ship, but a yacht, in Somali waters. They boarded the yacht, they held them for a ransom of seven million American dollars. Now think about this, just a couple out in their yacht, and I don't care if the yacht costs $100,000 or whatever it is, they hit them up for seven million American dollars. Well, they soon discovered that this couple didn't have access to seven million American dollars, so they dropped the price <laughs> to $100,000. Now think about that. From seven million, they're gonna drop it down to 100,000. But the dollar amount aside, that's not the point. The point is that these pirates literally took people into captivity by brute force and they intended no release back to freedom unless they paid a sizable sum of money. It's like a slave trader who captures and then sells slaves on the auction block to the highest bidder. They're trading in human lives and Money's the name of the game. The payment of such is called a ransom. That's what it's called, a ransom. And the transaction of obtaining the freedom of an enslaved person is called redemption. You pay the ransom, they're redeemed. Well, all this was very real to this couple from England who are very uncertain about their future. Would they make it out alive or whatever? They didn't come up with the ransom dollars. Then what would happen to them? In our text, Peter is addressing believers in Christ, and he's telling them that they should be holy in their lives because God is holy, verse 16, and that they should live their lives as strangers and pilgrims in a world that is hostile to God. They should live this way out of fear, out of reverence for God, and in thankfulness, verse 17. But observe now this additional incentive to live holy lives, 
They are people who have been held captive by, I'm reading scripture, by the empty way of life handed down to them by their forefathers, verse 18. That is a life of slavery to sin. But have now been restored to freedom because the ransom has been paid. Just as surely as those Somali pirates boarded the yacht of the English family and took them captive to hold them for a ransom, so the world, the devil, and the flesh had captured Peter's readers and was holding them prisoners. Now this is a spiritual type of incarceration, but it's just as real. You can't get free. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. John 8, verse 31. Oh, but they didn't like that. They took exception to Jesus' words, claiming, We, here's their answer to Jesus, We are Abraham's descendants, And have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Well, apart from the fact that they were lying through their teeth, since their whole history, Israel's whole history, was marked by slavery to other people. Egyptian bondage, 400 years, four centuries. Babylonian captivity, 70 more years. Presently, as they talked to Jesus, they were under the heel of Rome. Captive, 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 slave, slave, slave. Yet they say, you know, we've never been slaves. How can you talk to us like we've been slaves? Here was Jesus' answer. John 8, verse 34. Everyone who sins is the slave of sin. His answer, simply put, was this. You sin, don't you? You sin, don't you? Well, of course they did. So do we. So do all people without exception. In fact, we are such sinners by nature and by choice that Paul wrote, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Romans 6, verse 16. Either way. Peter said of the false teachers who distorted the gospel, they promise freedom, yeah, (laughs) while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. 2 Peter 2, verse 19. I could put it this way. Not to sin is not an option to people of the world. 
Paul told the Galatian brethren, Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Galatians 4, verse 8, verse 9. Oh, and by the way, Paul was not exempting himself from this scenario, nor should we. To Titus, Paul wrote, at one time, we too, you and me, Titus, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Titus 3, verse 3. So what is he saying? Well, he was admitting that at one time in his life, he was a hate monger. Just pumping out the bile of a bitter and wicked heart. Who in the name of God persecuted the people of God. You remember that, don't you? Before King Agrippa, he gave this testimony. Paul. He says, I too was convinced I ought to do all that I could to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Acts 26, verse 9 and following. Note that Paul uses the word obsession. Sin is like that. It, it holds us captive. It compels us to act in a certain way. He could not let loose These Christian people. He couldn't leave them alone. (laughs) He just had to hunt them down. Even if it meant pursuing them to foreign cities. He had to find them. He had to arrest them. He had to imprison them. He had to try to compel them to blaspheme. And if that didn't work. Then he had to vote for their execution. That's what obsession is. Now maybe your sin is not hatred. And persecution of Christians, but Paul mentions other things that enslave people. He talks about passions and pleasures, Titus 3, verse 3. Whatever excites you to disobedience to God's word. Sinners cannot not sin (laughs) in the biblical affirmation. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. And it goes on and on and on. What is vital to see is that none of us can free ourselves from these obsessions. We're born sinners. We are bent that way. There's even a sense in which we're happy to be held captive. We give ourselves over to slavery to sin. 
Paul writes, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. You used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. You used your body, your abilities to sin. That's what he's saying. Peter even warns professing believers of the danger of reverting back into their old wicked lifestyle. He writes, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit. And a sow that's washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. 2 Peter 2 verse 21. And Peter is referring, of course, to their sinful lifestyle. You know, you were brought out of that. Now you, uh, you really want to go back to that? It's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's like a pig returning to the mud pile. The chains of sin. Think about this, brethren. The chains of sin are stronger than those used by the Philistines when they chained Samson to the gristmill to grind their grain. He couldn't free himself because he was weak in his sinful flesh. Having forsaken God, he was weak as any man. So well, what's your point? My point is this. No one can extricate himself or herself from sin's entanglements. No one. I had a man, an elderly man in my Pennsylvania church. He was the son of Gerhardus Voss. Gerhardus Voss was a famous Princeton theologian. Well, his son, Gerhardus Voss Jr., was a member of my church in Pennsylvania. Highly intelligent man, but a meager means and ambition. Not like his dad. Yet he had learned his father's theology. One day I noticed him coming up from the basement of the church where the bathrooms were located. And I noticed that he had cobwebs in his gray hair. And I said to Mr. Voss, what have you been up to? Your hair is covered with cobwebs. His reply was, now this is the way he talked. I was watching this centipede that was caught in a spider web in the corner of the basement window. And we, even with all of its many legs, the more it struggled to get free, the more entangled it became. So I realized that it could never get free. And so I extricated the centipede from the spider web and carried it outside and let it go. And then he chuckled to himself and walked away. Kind of like God's redemption. Wow. How very true. (laughs) Sin is like the spider web that holds us fast. And the more you struggle to get free, the more entangled you become. And only a rescue from the 
outside, an outside source. Only that can extricate you from its sticky web. We are all kidnapped prisoners awaiting redemption, not knowing if or when or what means it will come to, maybe even contending ourselves that we're free. (laughs) I feel free when we are not free at all. So what is the ransom price? Well, the triad enemy of every person in, the, in, the, in life is the world, the flesh, the devil. One, two, three. Three enemies of your soul. The world, the flesh, the devil. John wrote, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but it's from the world. 1 John 2, verse 16. So number one, the world. Then Paul writes, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 5 verse 17. So, the world, but also sinful nature. Then thirdly, oh, let's not forget the devil. Peter writes, be self-controlled, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. So, world, flesh, devil, they all have a hold on you. They're all determined to maintain your allegiance. They are all committed not to let you go free. These are captors who are not interested in money. They don't intend freedom. They plan to keep all that they have enslaved, and they've enslaved everybody. Neither you nor your friends nor your loved ones have anything they want or need. They're keeping you. And that's why Peter writes, You know that it was not (laughs) with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Verse 18. And the world of the flesh and the devil doesn't want your silver. It doesn't want your gold. <laughs> Jesus asked this important question. What can a man, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark 8, verse 37. Peter says in our text. Not silver, not gold. And so our curiosity is piqued. We want to know why. Why not silver? Why not gold? Well, think about it. In the temptation of Jesus by Satan, we are told, the devil took him into a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and Worship 
moi, me. Is the one who already possesses all the kingdoms of the world willing to accept your pitiful resources to set you free? Not likely. Not ever. So money isn't going to do it. What about lust? Will money paid quench the sinful nature's lust for self-gratification? Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 19, Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Ephesians 4 verse 19. Lust is always hungry. More, 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 more. Never enough. Never satisfied. What about the world? What will it agree to to set you free? John in the Revelation writes, With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Revelation 18, verse 2 and 3. The world wants nothing you possess because it possesses everything it wants. And it wants you, period. So you can't buy it off. So none of these triad enemies, money, lust, the world and its baubles, its pretties, its pleasures, none of these triad enemies need or want anything you have or might obtain as a ransom price for your freedom. It has you. It's going to keep you. So the first fundamental element of a trade is destroyed. You're a slave with no personal means to extricate yourself from the spider's entangled web. The spider prefers having you under its control over anything you might offer to secure your freedom. You can beg, you can plead, you can reason, you can use logic, you can try to outwit your captors, but they're not deceived, they're not moved by your passion, they're not tempted by your wealth, they are not disposed to grace, and they don't care anything about mercy. They have you, and they know it. They have you and they plan to keep you. They are perishing and you will perish with them. Good, 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 so they think. They would have it so. So, redemption, that is being set free, is a pipe dream. They will never, ever trade 
anything you are or possess to set you free. They have you and they know it. The world, the flesh, the devil. The only course for freedom then is war. War. Someone will have to do battle for you and actually take you away from your captors by force. I wish our politicians understood this about the Taliban. There are no successful negotiations with them. The enemy is not interested in freedom. It's only interested in death. And our spiritual enemies are the same. Jesus said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. Romans 8 verse 44. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. John wrote of Babylon, this title was written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Revelation 17, verse 5 and 6. Murder, mayhem. This is all the enemies of your soul are interested in. You cannot buy your freedom from bloodthirsty tyrants because they will not negotiate. Oh boy, we are in deep trouble then, aren't we? What we need is someone to come in and actually rescue us. Take it to them. Take it to the enemies. So what is God's redemption? Well, his redemption is by blood. It has to do with a battle against our spiritual enemies. Now, we might be thinking, well, who is this triad of enemies anyway? Isn't God more powerful than the world, the flesh, the devil? Why doesn't God just give them a good whooping and snatch us away? Well, brethren, there is just a little matter of justice. Justice. Moses writes, he is the rock, speaking of God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. In our last study, we learned that God does not show favoritism in the dispensing of his justice, so we cannot expect leniency towards our sin. And sin is the problem Our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, know this. It's the cords of sin that hold us fast in this web. We are theirs by choice. We are theirs by practice. No one made us sin, yet sin is an accumulated debt so large and so tenacious that none can set themselves free. 
What is more, we are guilty, rightly held in custody, rightly prisoners bound for hell's fires. That's where we are. So what I'm saying is justice is going to side with our enemies. God cannot violate his own standard of right. I can hear our enemies laughing because they know this is so. Paul writes, as for you, he's writing to the Ephesian brethren, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. That's very true. But this is not our present state since redemption has come. But it was our life. It was our life when sin was our slave master. So our enemies have the goods on us and they know it. They are on the side of right and intend to take you to hell legally. That's why no ransom will ever do. The lion roars, he intends to devour. The broken law is on his side. What did God do to set you free? What could he do? He sent a lion to battle with a lamb. The ransom paid addressed the sin issue so as to take the teeth out of the lion's roar. Think about it. If God can settle the sin question, if, 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 if he can settle the sin question, if he can settle your debt to his own holy law, if he can pay what the law requires, the wages of sin is death, then all those under that penalty for whom the payment has been made, that's the required ransom, are redeemed and must be set free, regardless of what our spiritual enemies want. Pay the debt off, they got to let you go. Our sin places the sword of justice into our enemy's hands, but if sin is atoned for, if its penalty is fully exhausted, justice is satisfied, the sword of justice no longer has any claim against us. And justice has been satisfied, the law's requirement has been fulfilled, then you and I must go free. So I want you to observe the first outcome. First, the first outcome is this. It's inconceivable that a lamb could do battle with a lion and win. Think about that. Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. 
He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it, that is the law, away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and following. Or again, speaking of his crucifixion, Jesus said, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the prince of this world driven out. John 12, verse 31. And speaking of the time of the Holy Spirit that would occur after his crucifixion, Jesus said, that the Spirit would judge the world in regard to judgment because, because the prince of this world, that is the devil, now stands condemned. John 16, verse 11. And in Matthew 12, 28 and 29, he explained that this was already beginning to happen. He told his disciples, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, carry off his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can rob his house? He's saying that's what the gospel does. It ties up Satan. It binds him. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For, here's why, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night, that's the devil, has been Hurled down. And they, the saints, overcame him, get this now, by the blood of the Lamb. Hmm. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11. A lamb beaten up on the devil and winning. John describes yet a coming warfare between God and his enemies. And it's in the Revelation 17 and verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And with him will be his called and chosen and faithful followers. So this lamb is every bit capable of doing battle with Satan and his legions. And the cross is the point of victory. Since the children have flesh and blood, writes the writer of Hebrews, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely 
It's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Hebrews 12, 14, verse 16. No wonder the hymn writer sings, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Him written by Ann Cousins in 1857. Secondly, it's inconceivable that a lamb could overcome the world's hold on us. But Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will be in trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. John 16, verse 33 and following. And of Babylon, of Syria, who stand for the mighty conquering kingdoms of the world, God said, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will cut off from Babylon her name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely I have planned, and so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountain I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people, his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purpose, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Isaiah 14, verse 22 and following. John in the Revelation describes... The reaction to Babylon's ruin. They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Whoa, whoa, oh great city! Where are all who had ships on the sea became rich through his or her wealth? In one hour she's been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles, and prophets. I'm reading scripture. God has judged her for the way she treated you. In her was found the blood of prophets, and of the saints, and of all those who have been killed on the earth. And after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, 
who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And there was a shout heard, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, write, get this down, write it down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Revelation 18, verse 9 and following. And then finally, it can be affirmed that the Lamb has been victorious over sin and wickedness, which has emboldened our flesh to rule our behavior. Peter writes, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went, and preach to the spirits in prison. 1 Peter 3.18 Jesus read from the prophet about himself, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. This is why he came. Paul writes, it is for freedom. Get this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Galatians 5, 1-5. By the way, that righteousness is Christ himself. Again, Paul writes, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us Wisdom from God, that is, he has become our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. 1 Corinthians one thirty. So the Lamb is, in every way, a fitting opponent and victor over the devil, the world, the flesh. And I close with the thought, of the Lamb's victory. Isaiah predicted. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See. I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms. And carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers. Their queens will be your nursing mothers. 
They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors and captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you. And your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Isaiah 49, verse 22 and following. Can emancipations take place seems impossible and then he answers his own question yeah they're going to take place I got I'm going to pull it off the psalmist anticipated when you ascended on high you led captives in your train you received gifts from men and even from the rebellious that you O Lord God might dwell there Praise be to the Lord, to the God, our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord, comes escape from death. Psalm 68, verse 18 and following. Jesus fulfilled these promises. Paul writes, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ Jesus apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Ephesians 4, verse 7 and following. Wonderful, glorious statement of the surpassing majesty of Christ. It's because a ransom has been paid that satisfies the justice of God that every enemy of our soul must relinquish its control over us. They no longer have an issue, no hold on us anymore. The lion may roar, but he cannot devour. The world may entice, but it may not captivate us. The flesh may cause us to crave, but it cannot pull us to perdition. Our text, verse 19, a lamb without blemish or defect. Verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. They're in God. Praise his holy and marvelous name we didn't do it 
God did it. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us by his grace. Father, we thank you for your word. and We see in our life that, yes, we have been captives of the world and enslaved by Satan and by our own flesh. And we have these three enemies of our soul. And yet Christ went to battle for us. And he sent his spirit to battle for us. And he won the victory. He won the victory. Now we need to understand that and accept that and believe that. And if there are those here today who do not know Christ, then they don't have salvation. If they're still trying to work their way to heaven by being good, they'll never be good enough. The devil will see to that. The world will see to that. Their own fleshly nature will see to that. We need a Savior who can step in, take our enemy, and expel him from the influences in our lives. We won't do it because we're part of the problem. We're also the enemies of Christ. While we yet possess that sinful nature and that love for sin that makes us hate Christ. Preferences are very important, but we prefer our sin. So Lord, in order for us to be saved, you have to change our nature. Can a man change his nature? No. Can can God? You're the only one that can. So we're asking that you would grant faith and grant repentance that we might abandon our sinful nature, flee to Christ by your grace, that we might want him and his salvation, and that we might see that he is our only salvation. It isn't a partnership. It isn't us plus Christ that gets us saved. It's Christ that does it all. Thank you, dear Jesus, for loving us and taking us not just to an initial step, but all the way through to glory. And we'll praise you for what you do. Thank you for so great a salvation. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. But I want to change the number, ladies. <laughs> Five, four, six in Trinity. You know it. 546 in Trinity. And I chose this hymn because we've been talking about the Lamb, the, the Christ. And the last verse in particular says, The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. I know, sometimes we talk about, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see my godly mom and dad. And in my case, I will. Uh, but that's not the best thing about heaven. The best thing about heaven is the lamb is there. The one who reached into my sinful life 
and snatched me away from the enemies of my soul and planted me firmly on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together as we sing, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. streets, not pearly gates, 
not your deceased loved ones. And I have deceased loved ones in glory. But on the Lamb, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's hands. Okay, we're going to take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music for our communion service. We are dismissed.